We're in Matthew 7. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. comprises the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's end, in Matthew's book. So uh, last time we closed looking at how God is a good God and how important it is what you believe about God. You, you, need, you, you must believe that God is the God the Bible gives us. Not a God we make up, not a God we wish he was, but the Bible God. Because, folks, the Bible God is the true God. Amen? The Bible God is the true creator God who made all things. That's the real God. And that God is a good God. He's a good God. And Jesus said, as we looked at last time, that he gives good things to those who ask him. So a good God gives good things to those who ask for good things. And we know that something is worth asking for if we see it in the Bible. So I'm praying for a lost loved one to be saved. That's a good thing. If I'm praying for a job and I don't have one, that's a good thing. If I'm praying that God will renew my mind and lead me in his will, that's a good thing. And so you learn to pray according to the will of God as revealed in the scriptures. Now, Next, Jesus is going to get down to uh, horizontal living, that is, how we treat one another. And what we're going to see is, if you've got it clear this way, if you're in good relationship with the Lord this way, it's going to affect how you treat people this way. You really can't be in solid relationship with him this way without treating people differently. Getting right with God is the best thing you can do for your relationships on earth. Now, so he gives us the golden rule. And uh, here's the golden rule. Let's, it, it's up here on the screen. Let's read it together. Jesus said, therefore, whatever you want me to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, that's from Jesus, the golden rule. Now, this perfectly ties in with what he's already told us about judging uh, other people with a wrong spirit. Th this is all a flow. Remember, there's no chapters in, in the original Greek text. We made chapters. There's no verses. We made verses. Now, it's okay that the chapters and verses are there. I'm glad they are. It helps memorizing. It helps to identify uh, where you want to go. But, but in the original, it's just a long continuum. It's a long flow. All right? So, when he's talking about judge not that you be not judged, don't judge people wrongly or unfairly or harshly or in a wrong spirit. It makes perfect sense that he would then transition just a few verses later into telling us, look, the way you want to be treated is the way that you should treat others. Uh, have you ever tried that for a day? Have you ever tried that in rush hour traffic? Just for an example, uh, how many of you can be honest with me tonight and say, you know what, when I'm in rush hour traffic, I don't feel like treating people the way I want to be treated. They make me mad when they pull in front of me and go 20 in a 60, right? Or when they cut me off. But now listen, if, if you just try the golden rule for one day, you'd be amazed how hard it is. And boy, I'll tell you, here's what he's saying. Whatever you would appreciate others doing for you and to you, Treat them exactly the same way. Now, if you would run, if you and I would both run all of our actions through the sifter of the golden rule, 
our whole world would be transformed overnight. All the bloodshed would stop. All the murder would stop. All the drug pushing would stop. Because why would I want to get somebody addicted when I want to be addicted? I don't want, I don't want that raging in my life. So why should I make it possible for them? It would totally transform our world. Totally. If we all obey the golden rule. Would I want to be talked about the way I talk about others sometimes? Do I want, if I'm about to gossip about somebody and I run that thought through the sifter of the golden rule, I'll stop. I'll go, wait a minute. I'm about to say something about somebody and I'm not so sure it's right. I just think it's right because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of think that's the way they are. And so I'm going to make a judgmental, gossipy statement about them that is damaging to the people that are going to hear it. If I run my thought through the golden rule, I'm going to stop in mid-sentence. And I'm going to say, no, because I don't want to be dealt with that way. So horizontally, Jesus was all about relationships this way and this way. Okay? So he says, somebody asked him in another place, they said, what's the greatest commandment, Lord? And Jesus said, well, the number one is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. But then the second one is just about equal. He said, love your neighbor as you do yourself. Well, that's, that's just an extension of the golden rule. I don't love my neighbor as I do me. You see? So if I'm going to take care of me, I'm going to take care of them. If I don't want to be gossiped, I won't gossip about them. If I don't want to be wronged, I'm not going to wrong them. Wouldn't this transform our government? Wouldn't this transform businesses all over the world? Okay? Treat people fairly. Treat people right. Now, that's, that's what Jesus really wants us. And, and how will that transform a local church? You know, just I'm not going to gossip about one of my brethren. I'm not going to slander. I'm not going to wrong them. I'm not going to treat them unfairly. Um, I'm going to love them as I want them to love me. And it goes without saying, it's the whole sowing and reaping thing. If I sow love and goodness and the golden rule into the way I treat other people, it's going to eventually come back to me. It's going to boomerang. Everything we do boomerangs for good or for bad. So, now, Jesus transitions from the golden rule to talking about two gates, two roads, two options in life that both have eternal consequences. And Jesus was real simple. He didn't tell us there was a multitude of ways in life, of directions in life we can go. No, he was very simple. There's only two routes you can take, two gates you can walk through. That's the only option we've got. Two gates we can walk through and two roads we can walk down with two results. And that's it. He said, and you can read it with me, starting in verse 13, chapter 7, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult, and that means confined. 
difficult, confined, is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, how soon? Now, there's the, the Lord of life. There is God wrapped in flesh telling us the way the world really is designed. And what our options are, only two. There's two gates looking at every person. And you're going to go through one or the other. By default, you're going to go through one or the other. If you don't go through the gate of life, you're going to, by default, go through the broad gate that leads down the wide road that leads to destruction. But there's no way, there's not a human on earth that's not going to be walking down one of those roads. That's our choice. So first he says, he, he starts out with the narrow gate. The narrow gate leads also to a narrow road. And it's the way offered by Jesus himself. And he wants us to know, I'm so thankful that he shot straight with us. And I'm going to be talking about this road starting this Sunday. We start our crosswalk series. Because Jesus tells us the way it is. He says, look, if you're going to go down the narrow road and through the narrow gate, I want you to know that it is confined. It's narrow. It's constricted. It is definitely the least appealing of the two roads possible at first glance. I mean, who, who wants a narrow, confined road? If I can go down a broad road. Yet that narrow road leads to life. This is what struck me many years ago. I was preaching on this and it hit me. You go down the narrow road that is constricted and confined, yet that road leads to life. And have you ever noticed when you go down the broad road, so, so the narrow road eventually broadens in that it leads to life and fulfillment and peace. But when you start going down that broad road, it looks like, man, I've got all the liberty and freedom in the world. But have you ever noticed that broad road starts getting constricted and confined and tight and claustrophobic and oppressive? So you can go down the narrow one... And it eventually broadens in that you are a fulfilled, filled with peace, filled with the character of Christ, liberated, set-free individual. Or you can start down that broad road and end up bound, chained, fettered, unhappy, miserable, confined. Now, notice that Jesus said, you've got to go through the gate first in order to travel the road that the gate gives us access to. And let me tell you, the gate is Jesus himself. You know how I know that? Because he told us that. Jesus said in John 10, verse 9, he said, yes, I am the gate. And those who come in by way of the gate will be saved and will go in and out and find green pastures. Doesn't that sound beautiful? So, so he said, and that's out of John. In Matthew 7, he doesn't tell us he's the gate. But if you follow and read up on all of his teachings, he makes it clear. The gate I talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm the gate. I'm the gate. You've got to go through me to get onto the road of life. He's the gate. So we must first go through Jesus to gain a footing on the narrow road that leads to life. And it's a narrow gate because there's only one Savior. There's only one way. One cross, one option, if you want to be saved. We cannot get to the road of life without going through Jesus, the gate. 
which requires repentance from our sin, the acknowledgement that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, says the Bible, can get to the Father but through him. So he is the gate. He's the one we got to walk through. I can remember sitting in juvenile home when I was 16. I had never heard about Jesus. I'd never been confronted with the gospel. And here I am sitting in juvenile home uh, for a sale of narcotics charge. Can you believe that? Me, a sale of narcotics charge. I was in heap big trouble. And I was this scared, terrified little hippie kid. Terrified. I couldn't figure out why I kept doing the things that I did. I said, something's got a hold of me, and I knew this much. Something has a hold of me that's bigger than me, but I don't know what it is. And, and I heard the gospel sitting in juvenile home, and, and man, when I heard that, I heard Jesus. It was a Baptist preacher. He looked like Clark Kent. He had the hair all slicked back. He had the black frame glasses. When he first stood up to speak, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to listen to him. But anything beat the eight-by-eight eight cell. So I listened, and boy, he pointed that finger out in the audience. There was about 50 of us guys there. And he quoted John 3.16. And I heard about the gate and something got a hold of me. Something grabbed my heart and grabbed my attention. And I, I, I kept trying to make him think that I wasn't listening when I was. Because it seemed to me like he was looking right at me. Maybe I was just paranoid. But it seemed to me out of the 50 guys, he kept looking right at me. So I kept trying to act cool. And, and kind of looking around the room and acting like he wasn't getting to me, but something was happening to me because I heard about the gate. And, and when I realized that, that, hey, something about this is true, and I called out on Jesus, you know what happened? The gate swung open. And I found that, that when the gate swung open, I was placed on a road, the narrow road that leads to life. And Jeff Wickwire could have heard about Buddha. I could have heard about Krishna. I could have heard about any other religion, and it would not have done one thing to change my life. But he talked about the gate. He talked about Jesus. And that gate, when that gate opens up, the power of heaven falls upon you. The peace of God gets into your heart. And the Holy Spirit is poured out into your heart by God, and you are supernaturally changed. It is not a New Year's resolution. It is not turning over a new leaf. It is not rehabilitation. It is absolute transformation by calling out on Jesus, who is the gate. This message of Jesus being the only way, and there is no other way, and that's why it's constricted. That's why it's confined. That's why it's limited. Totally obliterates the message that our American culture has embraced, that there are many ways to God. It doesn't really matter which way you go. God sees your heart, and he knows that you're sincere. Preached by and taught by people all over the media, influential talk show hosts and all kinds of people teach this. They, they, have, they, they bring on these, these new age teachers that say that God is in you or you are God. And there's many ways to God, and God knows you're trying to reach him. So don't tell me that there's only one way. Our culture rejects this. But Jesus said, I am the gate. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And there is no other way to get on the narrow road that leads to life. You've got to go through the gate. Now, once having passed through the gate... 
We then journey down the narrow road because Jesus talked about a gate and he talked about a road. The narrow road that leads to life. Not only is the gate narrow, but guess what? The road that it places us on is narrow as well. Mm -hmm. Don't miss this Sunday. I'm going to start talking about this narrow road because many Christians don't understand the terms of the agreement when we come to Jesus. They don't understand the road because nobody talks about it anymore. We only go to motivational seminars and people tell us that we're supposed to be rich and get the best parking spot when we drive up to the supermarket to buy our groceries, that God's going to give us the best parking spot. And that is what Christianity has been reduced to. But that is not Christianity. Christianity is picking up your cross daily and following him down the narrow road, the constricted road that leads to life. So, boy, bring somebody that needs Jesus. We're going to have people getting saved. Amen? Jesus said the narrow road is a road of self-sacrifice, of crucifying our flesh, of denying ourselves, of resisting temptation, and of persecution from the world. That's the narrow road. Now, if I'm Jesus and I'm trying to start a new faith and I'm saying, hey, follow me, I don't want to tell people this. I want to say, hey, follow me, and it's a great big wide road, and there's all kinds of options, and we're going to have a good time, and we're going to party hardy. But he said, no. He said, if you follow me, it's going to be a narrow road, constricted. You're going to have to deny yourself, crucify your flesh, and walk with me. And it is through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of God. But it's the only road that leads to genuine life. He said it's the narrow road that leads to where? Go through the gate and onto the narrow road that leads to life. Everybody say life together. So, So the road Jesus leads us down has a really good outcome. We find ourselves in life and not death. But the broad road leads to destruction. Both roads have an end or have a result or have a consequence. The one Jesus leads us down, it may be constricted, it may be narrow, but it leads to life. Now, Jesus defined the narrow road this way. He said in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, he said, then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to lose your life. But if you give up your life for my sake, you're going to save it. Wow, that's, that's strong words. So you hear in, in this calling, he's, he's telling us the characteristics or the, what that road is like. It is sacrificial. We've got to lay aside our selfishness. Anybody in here selfish like me? Have you ever admitted that to yourself? You're really selfish, so am I. Okay? He said, you're going to have to lay that aside. You're going to have to take up your cross, your cross, and follow him wherever he leads. And if you you try to ditch that cross and save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life for my cause and my name, you're going to gain your life. Paul fully understood this. He defined the narrow road this way. And then they, 
I'm reading out of Acts 14.22. They, which means Paul and his assistants, encouraged them, the Christians, to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. He's telling them bluntly it's not an easy road. It is narrow in that it's restrictive. It's a road of denial. It's a road of sacrifice. Yet it is the road that ends in you being filled with life. So everybody say with me, well worth it. Jesus says of the narrow gate and road, he says, few there be that find it. Now that's a hard word there. Can I just tell you, bluntly, it means, compared to the masses of humanity, few, a small percentage of the mass, are going to turn to Jesus for salvation. He said, few there be that find it. The great majority of people end up going through the wide gate and walking down the broad road that leads to destruction. Compared to the narrow road or, and the, or the narrow gate, the wide gate is filled with options. You go through that wide gate, you're born walking through that wide gate you, you stay on that wide road, go through that wide gate and go down that wide road. It is much easier at first for your carnal flesh than it is to turn to Jesus and say, all right, Jesus, not only your Savior, but your Lord, and I'm going to pick up my cross and I'm going to crucify my flesh and I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to put my selfishness down and I am going to walk with you no matter what. Oh, it's so much easier to walk down that broad road. I see people do it all the time. Our world is filled with people who have chosen, chosen the broad road. It's, it's, it's the road of fun, frivolity, lights, attraction, glitter, glamour, excitement, thrills. But see, I've been around long enough to see this. It's temporary. Because payday always comes someday. And, and, and you can go to that broad road, ask the prodigal son. He, he took one look at that broad gate and he said, I am so sick of the father's house. I'm so tired of these rules and regulations and restrictions. And I'm really kind of tired of the father too. So I'm out of here. And he walked through the broad gate and got on the wide road and went to the far country. And at first, it was everything he thought it would be and then some. Women, wine, song, parties, fun, money, excess. But then the wide road started closing in. And all of a sudden, guess what? When the money was gone, so were the friends. Far country friends are never there for you. They're there for yours. Far country friends are users. And so he found that out. He woke up one day and said, hey, my money's gone. Where's Jim? Where's John? Where's Peggy Sue? Where'd they go? They're all gone. Why? Because you don't have any more money. They can't get anything more from you. Uh Uh-oh. And he's in the far country, and now the consequences are rolling in. And he finds himself job hunting, and there is nothing. He can't even find minimum wage anywhere. So he ends up going to a pig farmer. Now, to a Jewish boy, this was blasphemy because oink oink was forbidden. Okay? But he said, I'm desperate. I've got to find some money. I've got to be able to eat. So 
a pig farmer hires him. And he ends up eating pig slop. Now, the far country has closed in tight. And what started out as a broad way has now become a narrow way, but not in a good way. And he starts thinking, wow, I had it made in my father's house. Why did I ever leave? And he just wanted the chance to get back on that narrow road. And of course he did. And the father forgave him and you know the rest of the story. You know, we go to the fair at least every other year. And the way we go to the fair, we've got to walk through the amusement area. And when I walk through the amusement area, I always think of the broad road Jesus said most of the world walks down. I always think about it because here's somebody over here calling. Come over here and try this game. Come on, come on, come over and try this. And then somebody over here, come over and try this one. And before you know it, there are lights and sound and people and laughing and fun. And, and everybody is competing for your attention and your dollars. And I often think this is exactly a picture of the world we live in. Satan's tactic is to keep us distracted, invited, pulled, tempted, until finally we wake up one day and our life is over. And we've spent our whole life on the broad road, chasing this, chasing that, going here, going there, and all of it leaving nothing but sand sifting through our fingers. You ever felt that way at the State Fair? I mean, I love the State Fair. Don't get me wrong. I love those turkey legs. I go just for that. But, oh, man, I think about that when I go to that that amusement area. Uh, and that's what, that's what Jesus is telling us. The broad road is designed to keep you distracted year after year after year, chasing this, chasing that, trying this, trying that, always looking for what will fulfill you until one day you wake up and you're 60, you're 70, and your whole life is spent on the wide road. One man wrote this. He said, Broad is the road that leads to death, and thousands walk together there. But wisdom shows a narrower path, with here and there a traveler. Here we are, a few hundred of us on a Wednesday night, but most of the city chasing down the wide road. Maybe this relationship will do it. Maybe this marriage will do it. Maybe this drink will do it. Maybe this drug will do it. Maybe this worldview, this philosophy, this religion, this, that, and the other. And going down that wide, and the devil's so dependable to constantly keep something in front of you, that carrot stick that keeps you always looking. Somebody uh, texted me today, and they said, I'm about to go to another nation to be with my divine guru. I couldn't resist. I said, really? And I wrote back and I said, you know what? Oh, well, and then define the guru as divine love. I'm about to go to another nation, and I'm not mocking them. Trust me. Listen, I tried Buddhism. I tried uh, some aspects of Hinduism. I'm embarrassed to tell you, but there was a time I went out into the woods and sat down in, in classic lotus style 
and started saying "Om" over and over again so that I could become one with the universe. And I got ants in my pants. <laughs> but I was searching. I was searching. I really meant it. Hey, if I can get out here and sing, and you know, Aum is that magical Buddhist word uh, that, that's supposed to put you in rhythm with the rest of the universe, and you, you merge with the universe and find nirvana. And I got ants in my pants. That's all I got out of it. I had to get up and run. So I'm not making fun of them. They said, I'm going to go to another nation, and I'm going to find divine love with my guru. And I wrote back, and I said, you know what? I'm sitting right here, and I'm in divine love with my guru, and his name is Jesus Christ. And I said, I'm so glad I don't have to go that far to find it. Didn't get an answer back yet. But it's always something on the wide road to pull you here and there and everywhere to take you from the one thing that really would do it, that cross where Jesus died for you and me and where he spilled his blood and said to the world, I love you. And if you'll go to that cross and let your sins be forgiven, call out on his name, then real divine love will be poured into your heart by the Holy Ghost. And you won't ever have to search again. And that's a fact. I don't think it's by chance that Jesus next focuses on false prophets. For they are a main cause of people missing the true road that leads to life. Jesus warned us, read it with me in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now I want you to notice what Jesus said about false prophets. Let's just pick it apart. First, he tells us that they always come disguised. A false prophet does not ever approach you and me and say, I'm a false prophet and I'm here to deceive you. That is not what they're going to do. They're going to come to you in disguise. Their goal coming to you in disguise is to infiltrate your group. So they must appear harmless and lovable. They've got to appear, they've got to do something that makes you think, hey, this is one of us. This is the way they operate. They want to be received into your midst so they can deceive you from within the ranks. The major cults use this tactic very successfully. The Mormons will tell you, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh, you bet. And they'll quote the Bible to you and they'll quote, say they love the Lord and and, and all of this. And... They also involve themselves in a lot of good works. It's a very wealthy cult. But if you look into what they really teach, oh, do you find the wolf? It is filled with false teaching. It is filled with things that will damn your soul. It is filled with things that will be sure, that will assure that you never really do find the real Jesus. I don't care what anybody says. I've looked at their teachings. It's a cult. It's a cult. But they'll say, oh, yeah, praise the Lord, this and that, and Jesus, oh, yeah, John three sixteen. That's their lamb face. They come to you like sheep in wolves' clothing, or in, in, but there's wolves within. Sheep clothing, but wolf, ravenous wolves that want to eat you alive within. 
Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing, quote the Bible, talk about Jesus. But if you look into the Jehovah's Witnesses' teaching, really look into it, it's not hard to find all the erroneous doctrine, and it will assure you never find the real Jesus. But they'll, you know, they call themselves a church, and they put on this whole sheep face. Jude describes this infiltration tactic this way. He says in Jude 3 and verse 12, there's only one chapter, it's verse 3 and verse 12, for certain men, watch this, certain men have crept in in what way, everybody? Say it with me. Why were they unnoticed? How were they unnoticed? If they crept in, how did they remain unnoticed? Look what they did. These people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love. So there they are eating at your meals. They, they have snuck in. They are not real Christians. They are not teaching Christian doctrine, but they have come in under the radar. Praise the Lord this, hallelujah that. They're eating at your love feasts. They're going to your fellowship dinners. They're going to your potlucks. And, and, and they're commemorating, oh yeah, the Lord's love. Oh, the Lord's love is just wonderful. Oh, just let's commemorate the Lord's love. But look at what Jude says. They are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. And what is their goal when they're doing this, when they're coming in among you and eating with you? What are they after? They're after relationship so that they can seduce and corrupt your doctrine and your belief in Christ. When I was ministering, pastoring in East Texas, I saw this firsthand. I saw it in a way that I wished I'd never seen it because there was this precious couple came to our church, an older couple. And, um, well, they were just, I mean, they were, they were almost founding members of the church and, and, and they were dear friends. And we, and they were dear friends with other people in our life who were also dear friends. And they were just this wonderful, you know, kind of mom and pop couple. But then all of a sudden I noticed they weren't coming in church much anymore. So I started checking on them, and it turned out that they had come into relationship with this guy who was over at their house all the time, and he was teaching them doctrine that was demonic when I found out what it was. And he had, he had, he had gained their trust. He had gained their affection. He had gained their friendship. He came in under the radar just like this. Oh yeah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We commemorate the Lord's love, but let me teach you this and let me teach you that. And I watched this seduction happen right in front of my eyes. And I watched this precious couple's personalities change. I mean, where it was like, who got into their body and took over? It was like that. This, this, this took a good year. It was a very slow, deliberative process. And finally, I sat the man down. And I said, look, you know, I'm so concerned about what you're being taught and what you're believing and what you're believing about Jesus. He said, what am I believing about Jesus? I, I believe the truth about Jesus. And I said, well, that's not what I've heard. I've heard all kinds of things. So tell me what you think about Jesus. And he says, well, he sure wasn't a Jew. That's what he said to me. 
I said, he wasn't a Jew. He said, no, that's a great big myth. Now, I'm just going to tell you what he said. He said, God would never have made him one of those filthy Jews. So what was he being taught? He was being taught anti-Semitism. He was being, his whole, all of the clear Bible teaching on Jesus being the Lamb of God, Son of God, uh, from the tribe of Judah, definitely an olive-skinned Jew. A Jew died for us. It was all taken away from this man. And when he said those words to me, he wasn't one of those filthy Jews. I can't describe his face to you, his countenance, his eyes. And so I watched firsthand. False prophets. Paul the apostle told the Ephesian elders as he was about to depart from them, quote, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And now look at the next words. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And then he said, therefore, you better watch because I'm about to leave. Paul knew they'll never get away with it with me here. But once I'm gone, savage wolves, false prophets are going to try to get in among you. And some of them are going to come up from your midst who you know, who you're in relationship with. And they're going to try to deceive you. When Jesus was asked by his disciples what would be the sign of his coming in the end of the age, the very th- first thing out of his mouth was this, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus first describes their method to wear a harmless disguise in order to infiltrate the group. And boy, have I seen that happen in churches, folks. I can't tell you. And and all I'm going to say is this, on television, on radio, so-called Christian programming is loaded with false teaching. Just because it says I'm Christian doesn't mean it's Christian. Doesn't mean that it's sound. Doesn't mean that it's solid. I'm just telling you. Second, Jesus teaches us how to see through the disguise and discern a false prophet. You want to be able to figure one out or or, or spot one? How do you spot a wolf? Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits, not their charisma, not their pretty smile, not their education, not their attractiveness, not their wealth, but by the fruit their life produces is how you will know whether or not they're real. So then Jesus approached this logically. He said, let me ask you a question. He says, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? Well, of course not. The answer is no. How about figs from a thistle? No way. And Jesus said, all right, here's the deal. Every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. You're not going to get good fruit out of a bad tree. And you know what? You're not going to get bad fruit out of a good tree. When you and I look at a fruit tree, we don't focus on the bark. We just look at the bark on that tree. Now, that's some bark. We don't do that, do we? Or on the leaves. Wow, look at those. Are those leaves? I'm talking about a fruit tree. 
Like somebody says, there's an apple tree. You don't go, why would you look at those leaves and at that bark? Or its height. We don't focus on any of those. When somebody tells us that's an apple tree, we look for one thing when we look at it, don't we? What do we look for? Right. God's the same way. God's the same way. And he wants us to be that way. So can I go ahead and say it? He wants us to be fruit pickers. He wants us to judge. The good fruit Jesus is pointing to is sound doctrine that leads to godliness. And the fruit of the Spirit that, that Paul describes in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You look for love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. You look for the fruit of the Spirit. You look for it. Is there fruit in their life? And, and, and you, you ask yourself questions like this. Do their guiding beliefs reflect the teaching of the Bible? Are they accurate in their belief in the person of Jesus Christ? That's where the cults always go wrong. I've never seen a cult that didn't mess up or meddle with the truth about Jesus. So do they teach that he was very God wrapped in flesh? That he lived a sinless life? That he died for our sins? That he rose from the dead for our justification? And that he is coming again? Do they teach these things? Can I tell you one that doesn't? Islam sure doesn't. They don't teach that he died on the cross for us. They don't teach that he's the son of God. They don't teach that he is coming back to set up the kingdom of God on earth. They don't teach any of that. There is not one similarity between Islam and Christianity. Just for an example. So we are, if we're going to receive from somebody, we should be asking ourselves these questions. I don't care if you ask these about me all day long. Pick me apart. I don't care. But you ought to be selective in who you allow to speak into your life. Okay? Because whoever speaks into your life is going to influence you. Let me ask, here's another question you ask. To the best of their ability, are they living lives of moral purity? Are they growing in the fruits of the Spirit? These people you're listening to, you're receiving from, you've opened your soul to? If they're in the ministry, what kind of fruit is being manifested in their followers? Are they growing in grace? Is their group legalistic? Is it works-based? Is it oppressed? Is it joyless? Is it fruitless? I've walked into churches. You could ice skate to your chair. It was so dead, so cold. I've been in places that had church on the outside. There was no life. There was no joy. There was no fruit. There's just mean people. Mean people. Jesus doesn't produce mean people. So, 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 you know, what gets me in America right now is I think we have a huge discernment deficit. I really do. I don't think that we're thinking about who we listen to, who we receive. As long as they call themselves Christian and have a pretty smile, 
Well, then they must be real. But we've got to be selective. We've got to be discerning. We've got to ask questions. So even so, says Jesus, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Good tree can't bear bad. Bad can't bear good. It's that simple. A false prophet or a teacher will be found out by their fruit, both their doctrinal soundness and their spiritual fruit or lack thereof. And in closing, the Lord brings an awesome word of warning. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh Uh-oh. One expositor writes this. Every preacher and teacher that does not bring the gospel of Christ with him and plainly and faithfully preach it to the people, sooner or later, that man and that ministry is hewn down. Oh, I've seen it. I have the advantage of, boy, can I, am I really saying this? I am. I have the advantage of age. I, I've been around a while now. And I, and I want to tell you, I've been around a number of decades. I've been around long enough to watch people gain great influence, be extremely popular. All the while, I know the whole time they're teaching falsely. They're not teaching the word. They're not presenting the Christian faith like the Bible does. And yet it looked like for a while there, they prosper. I think of the words of David here. David saw the same thing. He said, I've seen the wicked in great power spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. I've seen so-called great ministries that were not teaching sound doctrine, weren't presenting the Christian faith as the Bible does, look like, hey, wow, they, they've got the world by the tail. But one day you wake up and it's gone. And there's not even a building left. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. The false prophet may appear as a tall, lofty cedar, carry his false message with convincing favor and success. Yet the time comes when he and his message are bowed and brought low. Such preachers are either cut off from the churches of Christ or hewn down by death. Therefore, Jesus closed out this portion in verse 20. Therefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. Let me ask you in closing. Do you discern this way? Do you, if you're receiving from somebody, if you're letting somebody teach you, television, radio, a church, uh, have you ever just said, Lord, you know what? I want to be discerning here because whoever pours into me is what's going to be formed in me. So help me here, Lord. So I'm going to look at the fruit, doctrinal, the spiritual fruit. I'm going to look at what their ministry is producing because who I receive from matters. Okay? Next time, shock on judgment day. And just do it. <laughs>